This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as legal, business, investment, or tax advice. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of RCM Alternatives, their affiliates, or companies featured. Due to industry regulations, participants on this podcast are instructed not to make specific trade recommendations nor reference past or potential profits, and listeners are reminded that managed futures, commodity trading, and other alternative investments are complex and carry a risk of substantial losses. As such, they are not suitable for all investors. Welcome to The Derivative by RCM Alternatives, where we dive into what makes alternative investments go, analyze the strategies of unique hedge fund managers, and chat with interesting guests from across the investment world. When you're at certain points of the monthly options expiration cycle, then the maximum amount of note can move, for instance, in today, tends to increase. So when you're in OPEX week, which we're actually currently in, then it's not necessarily a great idea, especially to use the short signals, because the maximum note that can be achieved in today tends to increase dramatically. So Perhaps normally we see it reverse around 30 or 40. Now we can see it like at 70, 80 or 90. So we actually, you know, overlay other, I guess so say features for determining when one should enter or exit. That tends to improve, let's say the win rate, because one of the biggest issues with new inversion strategies is they tend to have what's called a negative skew. So although they have a pretty high win rate by themselves, they tend to lose a lot of money when they lose. So small wins just do not cover it. Hi everyone. As an intro to our guest today, I'm gonna paraphrase from a recent blog post of hers. In this weird niche of the internet called FinTwit, you see an interesting confluence of people across the spectrum. Ambitious youngsters, talented researchers, complete charlatans, legendary investors, powerful hedge fund managers, regular day traders, and low information investors. What's fascinating about the internet is it ends up fairly meritocratic. We'll have to ask her how to say that. Meritocratic, up and to a point, regardless of origin, if you produce quality, you will get noticed. Uh So that was from her blog post, and that's uh, you will get noticed is how we ended up noticing one of these ambitious youngsters. Nope, it's Lily, or more formally, Lily Frankis, uh, here on the pod where we've had those powerful hedge fund managers and they're hundreds of millions. So meritocracy indeed. So welcome, Lily. Thank you, glad to be here. Uh, so let's get into exactly what you're doing out there to be catching so many eyeballs. So <laughs> you're, uh, but you're currently a PhD student? Mm-hmm. So I currently am doing mathematics at uh, UC San Diego. Um, University of San Diego, or I thought you were up in Cupertino, or both? I used to be. Like, I used to work in the tech industry for a couple of years, so I was software engineer at LinkedIn and Stripe, and then I decided to go back to school because I wanted to try something different. <laughs> and so now you're down in San Diego, though? Yeah, right now I'm in Malaya. It's pretty cloudy, which is pretty unusual, I guess, for San Diego. I love it. Um, and so, software. So you were up in Cupertino. What you worked at where? LinkedIn and Stripe. Yeah, so I started full stack development for 
couple years. Um, once I graduated from college, this was like five years or so ago. I had a Samsung tech industry, um, as we like to call it. And, you know, that was kind of one of my first actual like forays into finance, not only through my previous employer, you know, when I worked at Stripe, but in really work on the finance side, I would work more on, you know, developing the risk pool, but through the equity grants, for instance, from Microsoft and, you know, other employers, it was a good way to start, you know, paying attention to software. Um, and so working full stack there, what is, tell us what that means for us that aren't coders. Uh, so for computer science or for software engineers in general, you're really divided into a couple of different spheres. Uh, some people kind of do everything, but in general, you have front end devs. So those are people who do like web development, for instance. You have back end devs, so they tend to be more segregated, like developing the infrastructure, back end tools, the actual API, like whatever platform you're building. You also have you know, data scientists, which is kind of what I went back to school for, where they used computer science and you know, programming and all these tools to understand patterns in data. And also, this kind of is purely a tool for machine learning. And I would say those are like infrastructure developers who they really specialize in working low level and setting up these gigantic Got it. Um, so, did you do anything cool at those? Two or it was just entry level kind of stuff? I would say there were some interesting experiences, but in general, my experience in tech were not, I guess, what I wanted to do. So when I spent all four years in the tech industry and I ended up deciding to go back to school because I really was passionate. I actually previously ran a company well to these startups. And basically, I was pretty passionate about the biology side of things. So I was interested in can we use you know, software tools or big data, for instance, to develop better therapies to help people actually materially improve their lives. Um, and so the PhD, tell me what those things are. So bioinformatics and systems biology. Yeah. Yeah, so PhD, I mean, it's a long process. I actually just started last year, which not a super opportune time to also, you know, pick up an addiction to the market. But essentially, it's really focused on using software, specifically, you know, computer science, to understand biological problems. So one of my areas of interest in my research in that field was for autism spectrum disorder, where my brother has autism spectrum disorders. So it was something that I was passionate about. Could we develop better tools and better therapies for children, especially with autism? So does that tie in with like, were you, was any of the coursework or any of your talks around the virus and the, um, all of that? Is that kind of bioinformatics or no? It is, yeah. Actually, the lab that I was previously in was, they actually did some research with COVID 19. And I don't, when I was applying actually for grad school, this was late 2019, 
then you know you get to the point where you're actually doing interviews and COVID started being a thing when I was doing my graduate interviews with different universities in February and March COVID started spreading to Italy and I remember talking to my mom and I was like this is going to be really bad I think a lot of people in the states really underestimated what you know a high reproductive number of viruses and from the reports in China and the reports in Italy it was pretty clear by mid-February that you know things were getting bad I remember that I actually my roommate at the time was laughing at me because she was like, why are you stockpiling food? And I'm like, you're going to see in a couple months why I'm stockpiling food. So, and of course, cleaning supplies. And of course, then the market crashed. Yeah. And to me, it was all about like people, just a basic lack of understanding of arithmetic growth versus geometric growth, right? People are like, what? There's only 40 cases in the US. I'm like, well, yeah, it'll be 80 tomorrow and 160 the day after that. Yeah, I mean, it was pretty clear by April, I'd say, that there was just no way this was going to be under control. Um, I mean, I remember reading some reports that, I don't know if these are still current, because I haven't kept as much up with the coronavirus science papers as maybe I did earlier in the pandemic, but they were estimating that the reproductive rate was around six, which for people who are not in the biology sphere or epidemiology, that essentially means that for every person who gets sick, we expect that they're going to infect six people. Yeah. And this really is a pretty rare and rapid growing virus. The only one that's kind of similar is measles. And measles, we have a vaccine for. I mean, now we have a COVID vaccine. But at the time, it was pretty clear that once it started spreading in the U.S., that nothing would have done much. I hear you. I got my first shot. So I'm scheduled for my second. How about you? I got my first shot in February, and it was nice because I worked in a lab that was kind of affiliated with COVID. So I got the Pfizer shot, really wasn't a big deal. I tried to share my experience on Twitter a bit, but you know, I mean, hopefully this will be it. Hopefully we'll go back to normal. I know, I don't know though. I'm kind of enjoying the, uh, the home office here, but um, yeah, hopefully people stop dying. Uh, and so what's with the, what's your new uh, Twitter handle or not your handle, but your name, uh, Vaccine Pirate? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, it was interesting. We're actually incorporating, you know, business to run research stuff that we're doing as well as hopefully, you know, other stuff in the future. And one of the questions that they asked me when I was incorporating this was, are you a vaccine distributor? And I was very confused that a vaccine distributor would use like eventbusiness.com but I thought it was hilarious because it's maybe maybe at this point you know we're in the wrong industry maybe we should get into stealing vaccines and giving it to people because I'm sure those pretty good margins yeah definitely vaccine pirate so all this school work all this stuff and then you decide to get uh launch nope how did that all go down? Like just going to the movies or reading a book or something wasn't enough? I mean, so the story would note was that I started trading actively right around the market crash. My background is in business and computer science. So I knew more than the average bear would say about the market, 
but most of my knowledge kind of extended to this is how you price like a basic bond or this is what the market should do or I don't know discounted cash flows or something you know completely completely irrelevant for today's market and basically what happened was that I started with Robinhood just like everybody else you know Robinhood was free everybody knew Robinhood I'd previously tried Robinhood years ago didn't really stick with it I made free options for them and in May and and April everything was going up so you could just buy polls and make money and you're like oh my god I'm a genius (laughs) I remember in May I went from six thousand dollars I think I started with to about twenty thousand by the end of the month and I'm like this is so easy and of course you know then Judy and the market went volatile again. I knew a lot of people who were over leveraged and completely wiped themselves out. And basically, when the volatility started, my first reaction was like, oh shit, this is not as easy as I thought it was. So, my second reaction was, I'm a computer science, I'm a quantitative person, let me start analyzing this because, you know, the best way to trade would be what if I can system and that way when I'm doing my PhD in this fall I won't have to worry about it I'll just have a model that runs for instance and make some money I mean one thing that if you're not familiar with the PhD life it's not hiking versus you know working in tech so I was like this could be some money on the side while I do my studies yeah let me let me stop you for a second I'm just always curious so how did how did you find out about Robinhood and how did you want to start trading like, was it, did you in high school do trading contests or were you, or is this more like nefarious and they're getting into every corner of the uh, young people and getting into colleges and being like, you need to trade? I mean, so what I guess I had, you know, previous experience with Robin Hood, I also read Wall Street Bets because I was pretty active on Reddit for a couple of years. So I knew uh, the option trading market, I didn't really trade I mostly just enjoyed the memes of people losing money but then I remember pitching to my friend Monica I was like we should just start trading like this I mean she loves to gamble so <laughs> there we go there's my answer oh. but no for me honestly I'm not a gambler like I do not like I do not like risk and when I do take risk I'm very calculated like what I'm going to do because one of the things that's been interesting is the more I learn about the market, the less I want to bet a lot of money on options. <laughs> right. The more you know it's a rigged game, so to speak. Um, but so, like, when I'm in college, it was like, okay, are we going to play beer pong at 2 p.m. or 4 p.m.? But so, in your undergrad, were people like, okay, where, what are you doing? Do you have your Robinhood account? Which stocks are you looking at? Where, where'd you go to undergrad, by the way? For undergrad, I went to. Uh, University of Southern California, which you might know from all the scandals. Yeah. <laughs> uh, then I did, so undergrad business in CS, I graduated in 2015. So the market was hot. It was actually nice because when I started at LinkedIn, which was then part of Microsoft, I remember joking because that's when I first actively started investing. But my investments were primarily my 401k and the Microsoft here, which I still talk about on Twitter. <laughs> but it was interesting because 
it was kind of completely different than what normal, you know, market was and what it's, you know, you're supposed to diversify and you're supposed to, I don't know, put it all in, you know, boo or IVV or whatever is the lowest management right now. And with Microsoft, I got it right when it started the massive tech bull run for 2016 to 2020. Yeah. And I joke with people, I'm like, I had coworkers who were selling it and I'm just like, there is never a good time to sell. Like it just keeps going up. Yeah. What are you doing? Um, I've got friends who work at Microsoft and they get the stock options right at 10% discount to the current nav. So that's just a money printing machine as long as it's going up as well. Um, anyway, we lo- I buried the lead there, but was just interested in like, how did, the, how did all these people get to Robinhood, especially young people? Like, how do they all decide, right? So you're saying it wasn't the normal path. It wasn't the normal thing, but it seems more and more like it is the normal thing. Like everyone's trading. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I would say there's two forces that work here. One was kind of the crypto and the boom in 2018, which definitely made a difference. A lot of people joined the markets around that time. You know, everybody, even people who don't trade, know of Bitcoin, for instance, even before 2020's massive run on Bitcoin. So I wouldn't say it was like something completely divorced from what people were already thinking. Also, a lot of people had money in the stock market. And in 2020, there was some insane volatility. So people not only bought at the bottom, and a lot of people made a lot of money by buying at the bottom, but they also were like, well, now it's time maybe, maybe I'm a genius, so I could just start trading. And what's interesting is that (laughs) the market mostly rewarded that. So in 2020, it was, in multiple periods of time, very easy to make a lot of money. Right, and well, it seems like it's, yeah, it's still rewarding it to a, to a degree, right? Um, I would say a bit less since the SPAC bubble in February 2021, but it's definitely, I mean, it was very difficult to be a very, you know, methodological investor in 2020. Yeah, okay, so you start, um, you're investing, your friend Monica's gambling, but you're both doing similar things. And so you say, hey, I need to get a little more analytical on this and I create Nope. So explain to us what Nope is and uh, quick summary, quick elevator pitch on what Nope is. I mean, Nope essentially is a way to measure the notional impact of option hedging on underlying liquidity. And if none of those terms make sense, I could definitely go into more like that, what that is. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we, we'll dive in. Um, and our listeners will know more than the average bear, to quote, to quote yourself. Um, so let's start with how does it differ from GEX, from squeeze metrics and the kind of those things that are getting put out there? So it's interesting. GEX and Nope actually have a really significant correlation and there's a lot of, I'm actually exploring some stuff right now with, for instance, monthly operation or operations option cycle and how it impacts, you know, for instance, no in this case. For GEX, it's more a measure of like net gamma exposure. They tend to have fairly similar meanings when you apply them end of day. So an elevated end of day, for instance, tends to imply that tomorrow will have 
possible to mobilize volatility. Similar to GAP. The difference I would say is twofold. One, no, is an intraday metric. So in fairly normal times, it tends to be pretty successful at, you know, targeting intraday tops and bottoms on various indices, especially ones that normally revert, for instance. And two, it has some interesting corollaries with like the direction of market. GEX by itself is more measure of this realized volatility. So when GEX is high, you're supposed to, for instance, the market is not going to move. So we've seen a lot this week. The market basically has been in range pretty much most of the day. Even today, the massive explosion was what, like 0.5% up. For note, what's interesting is that this realized volatility actually can be put forward in the same day. So if note is let's say plus 50, that usually implies that realized volatility, let's say 60 minutes forward, is going even past. Similarly, like when note is negative 50, so similar to I guess you would say a negative gamma index, it tends to be related to increased realized volatility. And I guess you know the number one differential between the two is that Nope seems, I mean, one of our major use cases for it is using it for these intraday reversals on SPY, for instance, which gets by definition is, you know, open interest. So it doesn't, it's not necessarily something that you can really modify during the day. Yeah. But so that, so it's net option, what does it stand for again? Net option pricing. Yeah, net option pricing fact. So essentially what it's measuring is you have all the options that are traded today, you're looking at for the options that were traded today, what was their delta? So you look not only at the time of the transaction, but you have to adjust it forward. So if let's say the transaction was at 9 a.m., then I'm not at 1 p.m., then I need to reflect what the current delta of that trade was. And what that basically does for you is you can understand, at least naively, this potentially is the amount of shares that the market maker who is going to pledge those options would need to buy or sell in order to stay delta neutral. Right. And in reality, this is what it means. I mean, you know, I'm sure your listeners know crossing the spread. They know that market makers are often short, um, they're often short posts long calls, for instance, on the indices. They can hide you other options, but it kind of gives you this naive metric that you can kind of start doing statistical analysis on. And so and it seems, but if you're using it mainly as a mean reversion tool, so it's kind of like can identify when they're out of powder, so to speak, of like they need to do this hedging, this hedging, then they run out of need to hedge, which is right when the market might revert. Yeah, so at least my hypothesis is what happens when we see these intraday reversals essentially is that when this metric is elevated, the primary method of the market moving, you know, as the day goes along, is really related to hedging dynamics. So if you think about, let's say, hedging pull options. So on the industry, for instance, I'm a market maker. I, let's say, to keep it simple, let's say I'm short a call. So if I'm short a call on index, assuming that, I don't know, you can head with options or maybe, you know, let's 
keep it really simple, you're going to buy shares. And when you buy shares, this pushes the price up. Similarly, when another person then, you know, buys another call option, then that market maker needs to hedge as well. And they need to buy more shares. And what happens is that that actually continues to push the price of the index up. And I guess kind of, you know, the major takeaway here is that because of gamma, which for instance, the change of delta in relation to the spot price, because of that, the initial market maker needs to also buy more shares. Mm -hmm. So when the market makers are, for instance, short gamma, they're always chasing, you know, the underlying movement. But what's interesting is that once you get super far divorced from, let's say, normal buying and selling patterns, the price has a tendency to reverse. So when, for instance, if you've traded or look at the market much, you can observe that rallies tend to reverse when volume tends to go down. So what we notice similarly is that when there's a substantial elevation of this metric intraday, there's a tendency for the market to reverse direction. And because of that, you know, you can use it intraday pretty successfully. Normal times is a good indicator. This is not as, you know, ideal for, I would recommend people to use, but you can use it either as a risk off. So if you let's say have a momentum following strategy, you can use it to figure out when to exit a trade or if you're more adventurous, you can use it as a mean reversion tool and figure out and use it how to enter a trade. Yeah, but it seems interesting to me. It kind of seems counter to, to gamma, right? Like that it's running out of steam instead of you'd think gamma's like, no, it's going to accelerate into a, into new prices because they have to hedge ever more, ever more. Um, well, so the thing about, let's take the example of short gamma. So short gamma doesn't occur very often on the indices, at least um, theoretically and observationally, I'd say when it does, it tends to lead to increased realized volatility. So you can see this you know, when GEX, for instance, is negative. But when market makers are long gamma, actually the reverse happens. So when you're long gamma, let's say you sold a market maker call option and they're gonna hedge it now by selling shares. And when they do that, they're actually going to depress realized volatility. So if we're in, let's say, this long gamma regime, it tends to be more mean reversionary because if the index starts rallying, you're going to see that the hedging aspect of it is actually pushing it back down. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Um, and just to reiterate, you've learned all this since March of 2020? Yeah, I just really like derivatives. <laughs> That's crazy to me. And then, so tell me all the, you've kind of spun out these products out of here, right? So there's no chart. There's like, what, what are people, what can people use? Do you charge them for it? What does that all look like? So for Nope, I mean, I have a white paper on it where I kind of go into the analysis. I release this in, I would say November. Nope chart, we're actually developing signals on top of it because we've seen, for instance, I've actually was talking about this recently on Twitter that when you're at certain points of the monthly options expiration cycle, then the maximum amount Nope can move, for instance, in today tends to increase. 
So when you're in OPEX leave, which we're actually currently in, then it's not necessarily a great idea, especially to use the shore signals, because the maximum yield that can be achieved intraday tends to increase dramatically. So perhaps normally we see it reverse around 30 or 40. Now we can see it like at 70, 80 or 90. So we actually, you know, overlay other, I would guess, associated features for determining when one should enter or exit that tends to improve, let's say, the win rate. Because one of the biggest issues with mean reversion strategies is they tend to have what's called a negative skew. So although they have a pretty high win rate by themselves, they tend to lose a lot of money when they lose. Yeah. Which, so small wins just do not cover it. <laughs> which is my issue with kind of like all these gags and all this, it works until it doesn't, right? So it's like a great indicator. It's a great tool until there's a phase shift and you totally blow through those levels and you get into a new regime. How, how do you think about that? Yeah, so it's, I mean, it's something that when you're dealing with, especially intraday, let's say market dynamics, you have to be very cautious. I mean, one of the, one of the biggest problems with let's say mean reversion by itself is it's very difficult to tell when the trade has gone back. With a mean reversion trade, you know, there are optimal levels you can use stochastic calculus for, for instance, to figure out where to put your exits or entrances. But in general, I mean, even in our data set, you perform worse with literally any stop loss. So the issue with that is how do you know when it's not going to revert? That's why, you know, in those cases, you need to look at other market dynamics because, you know, no index for instance, are just one factor. You know, I mean, we saw this a couple of weeks ago with Archegos. It was like, if I remember, it was like a Friday and you just saw Spy tear down. You saw my common discovery tear down. There's no model that would have prepared you for that. Yeah. I mean, it was literally just Credit Suisse and, you know, Morgan Stanley and Goldman trying to front run each other to sell gigantic blocks of, you know, shares. And then we saw like a rip basically end of day because they were unwinding shorts. And in those cases, you know, you cannot model your way out of this. Right, right. Um, and to that point, are, is it, do you run it just on index options or it's on individual names as well? So we haven't really looked at it on individual names. My understanding is that the shape of like the distributed liquidity. So when you look at, let's say SPY for instance, if you look at the position of limit orders around spot, it tends to be approximately normal. I mean, not really normal, but at least normal enough. So because of that, that's one of the reasons why price tends to reverse when let's say all the available liquidity in one direction has just been absorbed. But when you see on Tesla, for instance, the shape of liquidity is different. You know, as you see today, there are certain stocks that when you buy, it triggers more limit orders above the small price. So instead of people saying, okay, it's too expensive, I'm not gonna, you know, I'm gonna remove my order, I'm not gonna put more, they're chasing momentum. So in those cases, my hunch is that nope and other metrics actually have more of a tendency to predict it to continue to go up versus for it to let's say reverse direction. Right. And then have you run it on other, like on NASDAQ or Russell or DAX or things of that nature? 
So we currently run it on QQQ, which I guess is NASDAQ, yeah. and it seems to work pretty well. I mean, it tends to work better, of course, for internet usage on these indices that have a tendency to be reverted in the first place. That said, you know, we haven't done as much analysis. I mean, QQQ tends to be more volatile, for instance, than SPY. Yeah. So theoretically, it should work. It's, I guess, less useful. I mean, one of the reasons historically that I ran it on SPY, I guess now SPX as well too, is because it tends to be more predictive of the whole market. So while let's say QQQ may be rallying because tech is on fire, potentially the market itself could be going down. And what's interesting about when you use it on, let's say SPX or SPY, as I talk about on Twitter very often, you can predict multiple things. You can actually predict currencies to some degree. You can predict stocks that have a pretty high beta to spy. So it tends to be a lot more useful for actually when you're trying to predict the market direction. Oh. And when you say, have, have you given any thought to like turning it, I'm not sure how to ask this question, but like turning it into a machine learning, right? It seems like a lot of the things you're saying are like that machine learning would do of like, hey, we're running this, we're throwing in all the option data, all the S&P data, and then we're getting outputs of signals on currencies, right? That's thing that machine learning people are doing in the markets. Yeah, so I mean, we've looked at it. I mean, I'm not personally a huge fan of machine learning. It's like a way to solve. I feel that like the noise is, or signal to noise ratio in general for financial data or machine learning tends to make it unsuitable for a lot of problems. That said, we are running a model. I mean, we have our NAD models using XGBoost, for instance, with multiple different features. So we are, you know, looking to productionize this, and part of, you know, that process is the signals that we show on our panels. And then you keep saying we're doing this, we're doing that. Who's we? So we're actually a team of like seven people at this point, <laughs> uh, which is fairly large. I mean. There's Sean, who, for instance, runs the website with me. He's actually the main engineer and architect of the website. I mostly work on, let's say, the quantitative research part of it. Then a couple of others are also working, or we're currently working, I would say, on productionizing our intraday and our end-of-day models. Got and But this is all pro bono, like you're doing it for fun, for education, as a resume? Like, what's the end goal? No, I mean, we're hoping, I mean, we kind of bought, for instance, trading on this, our intraday model, which got like 54% return last month, but not as good so far this month, just because the market's been weird. So we're hoping to productionize it. I mean, we're legitimately incorporated. Got it. Um, and then will that, will you cease your PhD or you still got to get that? My hope is to continue my PhD. I mean, I'm really hoping to actually like explore analogous phenomenon in biological systems. That said, I mean, five years is a long time. Yeah. Maybe there's little market makers in our body that are like gamma hedging our, you know, the diseases and stuff. And we have to, we can figure that out. I like it. Um, and so is this, that's what salient capital is? Is this... Sorry, go ahead. Uh, yeah, so salience right now is just kind of this umbrella term that, you know, a lot of these different projects, we're also working with some others 
on, you know, using social data as kind of this interesting feature on mental stocks. I've talked a bit about it on Twitter with basically like this analogous version of like, you know, the normal CAPM model to understand how people or rather how influencers, you know, tend to draw audiences on social media. So I'm hoping maybe that would be a good thing for crypto because it's very hip driven. So help social media people get more inf identify influencers or there's a financial aspect to it of like how to trade. Yeah, so there's a financial aspect on this. So my hunch is that, you know, in a lot of cases you see changes in activity on Twitter, for example, that tend to be predictive of market moves. Got it. Um, there's been a few of those that have tried and failed. So I wish you the best of success on that. Oh, I was going to say, so to me, and you've got these, a few headwinds for yourself, which I'm just curious how you view those. So one being you're a millennial, you're young, like, so are you getting any pushback from people you talk to of like, you've only done this a few months. You don't know what you're talking about. Um, call me back when you've been at it for three years or when you've worked at Goldman or something like that. I mean, definitely, there's really, I would say two groups of people that I've encountered. One, you know, found some really supportive people on Twitter, primarily also through my writings and my blog got a lot of traction, especially during the GameStop debacle. I would say the other group, you know, might think I'm overstepping my boundaries, and I probably am to some degree with a lot of my research and what I talk about. I definitely do not think I know everything. <laughs> I mean, there's still a lot, lot that I am still learning and I'm trying to, you know, fine tune my models, but I'm also just really passionate about research. I'm just passionate about talking to people and I'm, I guess like significantly passionate about just educating others. So as I, you know, say on Twitter, I'm often wrong, but if you're not wrong, you're not trying. Like, yeah. And I think if you're not, I think it is a generational thing of the your willingness to just put it out there, even if you're wrong, right? Like, I see that with some other younger people, and they just ask questions on Twitter. I'm like, why would you ask that? Everyone knows now that you don't know that. <laughs> but it's just this kind of feeling of like, no, I want to know the answer. I don't care if they know now that I didn't know that. Yeah, you know, kind of. I actually talk on Twitter a little bit about how Twitter is an interesting pedagogical tool because, or I think someone corrected me, there's an adult version of pedagogy, but I don't remember what it's called. But essentially, yeah, especially if you have a good audience and you ask questions, give a pretty strong feedback loop. So one of the things I did earlier on was ask a lot of questions. I still do pretty frequently, but maybe not to the same degree because I I know more now than I did when I started. Yeah. But you get answers quickly. You get to talk to people that you never would talk to normally. And if you say something and you're wrong, someone will correct you. Right, immediately. <laughs> Even when you're right, someone will correct you. Um, and then my second one would be being a female in a male-driven industry, unfortunately, still. So how do you feel about that? No worries? Attack it? I mean, I was in tech before this, so it's pretty much the same thing. I mean, 
I think for like the most part, I would definitely encounter some people who think I'm disingenuous or people who think that I'm just nervous for attention or people that maybe discredit when talking about war because I'm young or fairly new at this or also just because I'm female. But at the end of the day, my hope is for just results because it's awesome to be popular online. It doesn't pay any bills yeah. at all. And, you know, what I'm trying to do is get cool people to talk to, learn more, and work my models. Work my models. Love it. So you mentioned the liquidity. I saw that in your last newsletters. Um, it seems more and more people are kind of complaining about and talking about the lack of liquidity in the uh, S&P and E-mini futures. So what are you noticing there? Kind of paraphrase what you put in the newsletter, if you would. So the interesting thing was I noticed this more maybe if I were right before the correction period. Um, it was pretty obvious when we saw those massive teardowns and price that let's say we fell 1% in like 15 minutes. I guess you could argue, and obviously we're kind of seeing that, like for instance today, we saw that the price went up pretty dramatically toward the end of the day, even without seeing volume. So this tends to be a more unstable state. I mean, a lot of people have talked about the decrease in, let's say, the liquidity index on Bloomberg, the widening of bid-off spreads on even new futures, especially as you open size. I wouldn't say, you know, we're in the worst scenario that I've seen personally with in terms of liquidity. One of the, you know, sterling indicators, I guess, in this case, for diminished liquidity is the note, because when we're in this, you know, fairly illiquid state, it tends to move more dramatically based on pretty small price moves. So we're kind of seeing that again. I wouldn't tell everybody to rush into shorts yet, um, but it is something that concerns a lot of people because we've seen this massive march higher, literally, what, like 10% were up since, I would say, like late March, and there's just no volume. People are just not trading. A lot of this seems to be driven primarily by this hedging of options. Uh, and speak to it and you were saying in the paper like you'll often see on more right so if we're saying it's illiquid usually means more volatile but we're seeing illiquid equals less volatile um how do you square that or we just haven't seen the volatility yet i guess i wouldn't say for instance volume is a good proxy of liquidity in general an example is that if you actually look at heavy volume days on the S&P, there's tend to be more volatile. So you kind of have this paradox where if you have, let's say, a very thinly traded ticker, let's say, let's say, I don't know, trades 10,000 shares per day, chances are the price is going to be pretty volatile. But, you know, on a heavily traded ticker like Apple or like SPY, for instance, in general, days with low volume tend to be very, you know, calm. Yeah. So 
I think that a lot of the diminishing liquidity is still pretty well under the surface. You know, we did see, like I said, in early February, these teardowns of price because the order book likely actually didn't check, but the order book was very thin. I mean, <laughs> we saw a dramatic example of a very thin order book with GameStop when it was rallying for the second time and it within literally 30 minutes fell from $340 to like 190. So I'll be more concerned when I see that in the case. I think this general trend toward illiquidity is a much more gradual process. And it's really difficult to say that like it's gotten worse for instance in the last two weeks. Yeah. Um, yeah, and our algo execution group keeps saying, well, you gotta be careful there because even the order book doesn't necessarily mean liquidity, right? Because there can exactly. be groups hiding their size and and whatnot. Um, so I keep hounding them. I'm going to tell them to listen to this. I keep hounding them to come up with a metric, their own nope, so we can see the true liquidity based on several measures instead of just most people are using the order book. Um, I mean, that's it's an interesting thing. A lot of people consider no grading X, for instance, and other option metrics to be a more true measure of the actual order book than the order book itself. Because, you know, when you're trying to reconstruct it, especially real time, it's very difficult, except, you know, looking at, let's say, how much you actually impacts price, to really determine, you know, what is the true liquidity under the surface. Right. Right, and you see that in futures, especially, right? If a market's limit down, the options are still trading. So that's the ultimate definition of liquidity, right? Like I can't, literally can't transact in the futures, but I can go create a synthetic long or short in the options. Um, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Sorry. Oh. Uh, and then I forgot to ask back at, on Salient Capital V, is it Salient Capital? I feel like I'm saying it incorrectly. Salience. Salience or salient with a T? It's salience, but I mean, it actually comes from these posts that I wrote in January called Trading Salience, which kind of talks about the role of the internet in basically these hype bubbles and why it's a bit different than, let's say, I don't know, a lot of people compare it to, let's say, the chat groups in the 90s. And I'm just like, there's a completely different level of penetrance here. Um, and who is it? Uh, David Nadig, I don't know how to say his name, who had a good post on like, to your point, this is way different because GameStop, for example, you're getting the more people that click on and look at GameStop, the more the social networks are going to serve up that content. So it's like a self-fulfilling, right? It's not just 10 people are talking about it on a chat room. It's like it's uh, a cycle where the more people that click on it, the more it's going to get served up, which leads to more people clicking on it. And you kind of is that the premise you were going with? Something along those lines? Yeah. At this point, it's more that you know you see these influencers like devalue Keith Gallows, you know, real name. They have massive impacts on the market. You know, maybe for many years you could get away with not paying attention to social media on the market. I think it probably did not have a significant influence until Robin and showed up in 2017. But we saw just this last year so many different social media driven squeezes that, you know, I mean, famously Melvin Capital reported like a 50% loss because in Q1 in January, all the shorts were completely destroyed. 
Yeah. Which that's kind of the old, perfect example of like new school versus old school, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so I keep forgetting my question on salience. And so that's going to be managing money. You're going to be a like a hedge fund or investment advisor. Or what's the goal then? That's kind of TBD, but I can't really talk publicly about that. Okay, for... I like it. Come when you decide. Let me know. Um, and but it's not currently managing any people's money. It's just the signals currently, right? Yeah, the Salience Research Company is right now just the signals. Got it. So what's next for Salience after the no, after all this? What you what else do you have on the? You mentioned the crypto. Do you want to dive into that a little more? Yeah, it's a really interesting market. I mean, one of the things that draws me into a lot is just there's not much exploration, at least publicly on papers, about the market microstructure of crypto. So I recently had a question on Twitter where I was like, how do you even hedge a Bitcoin option? And surprisingly, it's just not very well known. I mean, theoretically, it's done pretty similar to, let's say, you know, vanilla option on equities. But nobody really has a good understanding, at least publicly, about the behavior of various parties in the crypto, I guess, marketplace. And there's a lot of persistent arbitrage opportunities, which kind of are related to the fact that this market is still pretty underdeveloped. And, you know, there's a lot of, I would say there's a lot of off out there. I mean, there's a lot of people that are pretty mortified of what's going on with the bubble. But it seems like Bitcoin's going to be the future. Yeah. So, wait, what with the bubble? What's the bubble with with Bitcoin? Yeah, I mean, Bitcoin has gone up what now 1100 1, since March twenty twenty, which probably is unsustainable. But at the same time, you know, there's a lot of money sitting off this, which. Similarly, I know a lot of people have made a lot of money on it. Yeah, and we talked to some groups that do actually do options on that, right? And they implied as like 80%, 800%, some insane numbers. Like, it's, how do you even model uh, normal option stuff when the ball is that high? Exactly. I mean, in a lot of cases, I've seen that senior flashbacks break down. You know, if you see those ads that could rock it up to and this just popped in my head to ask you like have you entertained at all like going to work for a prop firm uh so like in chicago there's tons of groups i'm sure would hire you and say hey here's right here's some money work your model you keep whatever half of what you make i definitely think this is so pretty i was until like Later, I was more just someone who talked about stuff on Twitter. It wasn't like, you know, I have any material aspirations of what I was doing or what I talk about. I definitely consider it, you know, I mean, I'm still, you know, trying to, I guess, weigh my options and also just develop more because one of the things I like most about the market is just it's literally the greatest game. I mean, at the end of the day, it is this continuous game where everybody is you know, in a competitive field and it's changing. And if you do not adapt continuously, you're just 
eventually you're just going to get pretty fat. So with that, you know, I've really just been focusing lately on making sure that the models I'm working on not only are pretty sound casually, but also start actually make money. Right. You you belong back in the 80s in Chicago because it was people from nowhere, just ambitious. And they'd end up on the trading floor, right? And whether they came up with a model or whether they just had tons of bravery and some stupidity, but right, they could come from nowhere and make a lot of money um, versus I kind of say Chicago versus New York, like New York to get in, you had to have more of a pedigree and have gone to the right schools and uh, get the right internships to eventually make it to the trading rooms. Um, yeah, I, I guess it goes back to your quote of my blog post about, you know, I would say Fintway and even market development. At the end of the day, it's meritocratic. If you're not good at what you're doing, you're just not going to last in the industry. So I need to make sure, just like everybody else, that I'm on top of my game. I love it. gonna go to uh favorite so my first favorite be favorite san diego restaurant it's kind of a shame i've actually lived here now six months and i still have not really gone to a restaurant yeah yeah i mean i've gone i've gone to out but i mean if i was if i was to say my favorite restaurant in the bay area would probably be Hot Case Pizzeria, which is this pizzeria. If you go there, it's really good. I guess second, this is more of a chain, maybe both of our chains actually at this point, but in Cindy, or it's actually in San Diego too, but in San Jose, there is Dintai Fung, which is a really awesome soup comfort place. All right, I'll take both those. Um, favorite gamma type Twitter follow? That is a good question. I mean, there's small some people on Twitter, you know, Sam Carson, Jim Croissant, um, Chris Sidial. Probably my favorite, of, of course, Ben uh, Eifert, but he <laughs> doesn't really talk about the market too much. Probably my favorite overall, just because he's so nice, is Chris Adam Messier. So he actually yeah. writes blog called He's great. We're trying to get him on the uh, pod eventually, but. Uh... He, he craves his privacy as well. Um, no, those are all great ones. Um, favorite thing you were going to call Nope before you called it Nope? Did you have some other op choices? So the first version of it was called It's Skew because, you know, essentially, what was it? Just Skew. Just like everything, you know, everything is called Skew anyway. Yeah. So, um, then it was called the option price in the factor. And then someone who was just in the chat when I was talking about it was like, why don't you just call it the net option price in the factor? And I'll call it no. And I'm just like, I love it. Let's do it. Done. No. You think that's part of the success of it all? I feel like it's so, it is catchy. It was like, all right. If it was called something else, 8264 model, I might have skipped over the blog post, but no made me go to the next line. So it's been a double-edged sword because, you know, I've had a lot of detractors and I'm working on it who just make jokes like, oh, it doesn't work, nope. And I'm just like, <laughs> yeah. 
I've never been on board. Congratulations. And I guess, you know, I'm a very comedy driven person. You know, I post a lot of jokes on Twitter, but I think it's more because I think it's funny than I actually care if anyone else thinks it's funny. Yeah. And, you know, that's why whenever I make a model, I always want to find like a funny name for it. You know, it isn't necessarily because I'm trying to like get people's attention. It's more just like, of course, let's not be serious here. We were just looking the other day. There's some group in Brazil, I think, but they call all their uh, mod their trading models like little robots, like George and Adam, and all these little. And they have little images, cartoon images for all of them. Um, so I'm going to bury my section now in like my 15 bad dad jokes about no. I don't want to offend you. Um, and favorite biotech something. <laughs> I'll take uh, favorite biotech company. I mean, I'm trying to think what one would be. I mean, I've heard good things about um, Oxford Anaphor. I always joke with people that Pacific Biosciences and Oxford Anaphor, those are kind of names that have trickled down to academia. So even as like a first year student, first sequencing, like we know about Anaphor, we know about and it's just like, I always think that as a good sign for market penetration, it, it reaches the point where you have people actually learning how to use it. Yeah. So, because people tend, I would say maybe less in mathematics just because it's such a cutting edge field as is. But in general, my experience is when people are talking in school, they tend to keep doing it for a while. And is the bioinformatics like CRISPR technology and that kind of thing? Okay. Yeah, I was just, I was talking with the private equity manager who was like, I th he's like, I think in 30 years, like students are going to be, instead of learning how to code, they're like learning, right? They're going into bioinformatics, like much more, uh, much more than today, just learning how to code and do what, like, let's learn how to code the body and biological stuff versus the computerized coding is going to basically start to take care of itself. I mean, it's one of the worst things of like working in research and stuff is, you know, learning about this stuff is you kind of get a lot of your aspirations dash because once you realize what, where we're actually at with this research, like CRISPR, for instance, or 3D printing of organs or any kind of these science fiction technologies, you're not like, okay, it's going to be here in five years. Oh, it's like way out? I mean, I wouldn't say like, let's say lifetimes away, but I would not expect you're going to get a kidney printed for you in the next decade. <laughs> All right. What do we have first? Autonomous trucking in the United States or 3D printed kidney? I mean, I was actually talking about this because right now there's another EV company going to IPO. It's just like a lot of them are going to fade away because as lovely as like autonomous driving sounds. I'm not, for instance, in that industry. I kind of understand it just from, you know, a service level, but it really does not seem there. <laughs> oh, it's coming. I'm, I'm a big believer there. That will happen. Um, Probably in the next 10 years or so. But I mean, I just do not see it by like 2023, for instance. Right, and one truck will kill like one little girl and it'll get put on hold for 15 years. Um, not that we want that to happen. 
And then you can break my heart now because I have a feeling you're not a Star Wars fan, but favorite Star Wars character, which we ask all our guests. It's been a long time breaking Star Wars. I guess maybe Princess Leia. Is who? Princess Leia? All right. Mm -hmm. Love it. Do you ever do like do the do for Halloween or anything? So my mom is actually a dentist by training. <laughs> and as a kid, like I think we went for treating for me like the first six or seven years. But she would always take away her pain. She just literally like we'd go to the shooting, we chewed her face it with like a bag of chocolate or something. So just like once you get that feedback and you're like, why am I doing this work in the first place? Let me just get the chocolate. <laughs> I love it. Good one. Um, well, thanks, Lily. This has been fun. Uh, tell everyone where they can find you on all the, your links are all too confusing for me. It's like nope.lily.medium.whatever, but give, you have any, we'll put it in the show notes as well, but give us the audio version of where they can find all your good stuff. Sure. So I guess the best and like most up-to-date place is always nope underscore it's underscore Lily at Twitter. Then you can also look at nopeitslily.substack.com, which is where I'm writing like my weekly forecasts, as well as I'm starting like long-form content there. And finally, like nopechart.com is like the official-ish version of like the nope model. So if you want to check it out, all right we'll do thanks so much we'll talk to you soon best of luck with everything you've got a bright future ahead you've been listening to the derivative links from this episode will be in the episode description of this channel follow us on twitter at rcm alts and visit our website to read our blog or subscribe to our newsletter at rcmalts.com if you liked our show introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe and be sure to leave comments. We'd love to hear from you.